0: You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. In today's message, Pastor Josh Brady preaches from Romans chapter 9, where the Apostle Paul continues to write about and reinforce some of the themes he's brought to us in previous chapters. As we listen today, may it be our prayer that God will continue to conform us into the image of Jesus as we study His Word. Well, good morning church. How are we? Great. If you have your Bibles, would you open to Romans chapter 9? All of it. We are going to journey through 33 verses in about 35 minutes. Are you ready? It's going to be a good time. As you are turning there, uh, we are moving from one of the most loved, the most quoted, the most powerful chapters in all of the Bible to a chapter, well, uh, even a section, chapters 9, 10, and 11, that are usually picked over, glazed over, because they're really kind of hard. This section of Scripture is going to feel a little bit out of place. Here, here's what I mean by that. In Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 8, you are going to have this beautiful picture of the gospel that ends with this soaring presentation that Paul gives in chapter 8. It's a beautiful thing. And then you're going to get to chapter 12 through 16, and you're going to see some incredible application to how that gospel is going to apply to your life. Then there's these three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And, and it's going to feel not at not, not a place like it doesn't belong in the Bible, not at a place like it doesn't belong in this letter, but maybe like it would, would be better suited as, as an appendices, some, something to go towards the end that, that you could go back and turn to. That's what we may think at one quick reading. But if we pause and we take our time and we look at these three chapters as one, one unit, one, one thing together, and that's what we're going to do over the next three weeks, hopefully what we see is something beautiful and and power in, powerful in and of itself, okay? So as we jump into that, I, I want you to, to kind of know where we are going. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are one unit. But they all distinctly have something different they are communicating. Chapter 9 is going to speak about Israel's past. And even what I mean by Israel will be explained as we journey through these three chapters. Chapter 10 will be about Israel's present-ish situation. When you hear Israel, don't think modern-day Middle East plot of land. Think God's covenanted people. Okay, so Israel's past Israel's present and then Israel's future will be chapter 11 So so as we think of this in an entire section as one it's broken down in those three caveats Okay, and so today we look at Israel's past but to be clear Some of the teaching here can be a little bit difficult sometimes it's just difficult to understand Sometimes it's difficult to understand, and and maybe you understand it, but then it's harder for you to agree with it. And and here's potentially why you today will find some trouble agreeing with where we are going to journey in in chapter 9, because traditional wisdom and traditional teaching throughout our current modern generations have maybe led us to think something different than what the Bible is teaching us here. And then maybe, maybe you can understand it and maybe you can even agree with it, but maybe you even find it harder to apply it to your life. It is very possible that as you read through this section, you become more uncomfortable than you were, than when you began, or maybe even unsettled. But listen to my encouragement right now, before we jump into the first word of the first verse, hang in there, stay focused. This is indeed incredible news. Now, before we jump in, I want to give you an illustration that hopefully will be helpful. So helpful, I'm going to burn some really precious time that I'm going to need to teach through it with this illustration, okay? So a few years ago, I had the great honor to travel to Bangladesh to be a part of pastor training there. We flew into a city called Chittagong. Chittagong is the southwestern coastal city uh, in that country. Uh, And as we landed, we we made our way to our hotel, and then we ended up going to this building that we rented. It was five stories high, uh, and we rented the whole building out to ourselves, and we invited pastors to come in from all across the country. There were 25 pastors who joined us for the seven days. These pastors were serving in some of the most unimaginable persecution your mind can begin to fathom most of these men were serving in Taliban occupied areas when we got there we we found a security guard a doorman as it were and we paid him we paid him to protect us and we paid him to tell people we don't exist funny enough those guys go to the highest bidder on that day we were the highest bidder on the next few days we weren't On day three of our training, we are sitting on the fifth story of this high rise building in Chittagong in Bangladesh. And we hear a knock at the door that gradually got louder. And then all of a sudden we see the door that is metal fall down as it is being kicked in by Taliban soldiers. They come in, guns drawn. Thankfully, one of our pastors who could speak English and Bengali Spoke to the Taliban soldier, grabbed him, form tackled him out, and they barred the door again and put things in front of it. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh no, what do we do? And they were like, teach. I'm like, ah, what? No, escape. They said, teach. We taught. Thankfully, the Taliban soldier went away. Thankfully, we had to go back and re encourage the doorman to be on our side, so we had to pay him some more money. He was. To say that that left our team uneasy is an extreme understatement. The very next day, day four of day seven, we make our way back to the building, nervous about every lingering look, every shout, every sudden stop of the rickshaw. They tell us, do not blend in. I'm not quite sure if this is a legitimate statistic. But most Bengali people are not six foot, 275 pounds. And so it was really hard for me not to fit in or to, to stand out. So as we are going, every time the rickshaw would stop, I would look around to make sure that we are safe. We get into our room, we go to the fifth floor, and then all of a sudden in the middle of the teaching, the ground begins to shake and the bu- building begins to sway. And I start looking around and nobody seems to be concerned. And then the translator says, Earthquake. So I say, oh no. So I run down the stairs out of the building and I'm laying in the street, just laying down flat, trying not to let anything fall on me. And I'm just thinking, this is my first earthquake. This Mississippi boy doesn't know anything about this. What am I going to do? And I look around waiting to see everybody in mass panic and they're just looking at me like I am a fool. I'm legitimately laid out on the ground. Like you ain't gonna make me fall earthquake. And the Bengali people are just looking at me nobody followed me out of the building nobody was running for cover and i'm trying to figure this thing out okay so so as as i'm thinking through this i get my heart rate down i'm absolutely terrified and i officially had it with these last two days first the taliban broke into our meeting with guns drawn secondly we had an earthquake i was done get me back on that plane get me back to america Get me back to mississippi to the mosquitoes to the heat to the hurricanes and the tornadoes give it to me now But the strange thing was, nobody else seemed to be terrified. None of the Bengali people seemed to be affected by any of it. Not worried, not one bit about the Taliban or about the earthquake. So as I got the nerve back to go back into the building, I asked the pastors, aren't you nervous? And they said, about what? I said, what do you mean about what? About the Taliban coming in yesterday and the earthquake that we just experienced. They said, no, this is everyday life to us. Everything's fine. It's a beautiful day. Teach on, pastor. So I took a deep breath, I had to reassess my current emotional state, which was not well, and remembered why I was there. My goal, my reason for being there was to train pastors. The things happening around me, the things that I wasn't used to, had thrown me for a loop. It had taken my attention and focus off of what it was supposed to be on and put it on something completely different. So, as we get ready to jump into this awesome passage of Scripture... Let us go ahead and figure out where we are going. Potentially, you will hear some things that will potentially divert your mind's attention, your heart's affection, and take them off what it should be on and put it on things that it shouldn't be on. So I want to go ahead and tell you what I'm going to tell you through today's sermon. Number one, write it down. God is 100% sovereign over everything. Everything. You're going to hear that. Don't let that be a distracting thing. Let that be a calming thing. God is 100% sovereign over everything. Secondly, man has free will to choose and to act. Both of these things are true. You're going to hear that today. You're going to hear that next week. You're going to hear that the week after. All right, are you ready for this? This is even more important. This dives a little bit deeper. The only way that someone is ever saved is because God saves them by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Fourthly, the only people that spend an eternity in hell separated from God are those who reject the grace extended to them through Jesus Christ. Both of those two things are true. That's what I'm going to tell you today. I want you to know that before we jump in. Those are the marks that we are aiming for because when we potentially read through this today with the remaining time that we have left, you are going to feel distracted, wanting to chase a rabbit. Don't chase the rabbit. Stay focused. Be clear. Be resolved. Resolve these truths in your heart. So when we experience the unexpected, when we become uncomfortable, You can stay focused on the main thing. Here is the main thing in chapter 9. Paul is brokenhearted over his own people, the Jewish people's rejection of Christ. Paul's also going to explain how the Jews' rejection in God's sovereign plan opens up doors for Gentiles to receive the promise of God. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And if you're in this room and you're born again, this is good news to you today. So with that being said, let's jump in and buckle up. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my other brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So, so Paul is here saying, I wish I could give up my communion with Christ, my salvation that Christ has extended to me so that my Jewish brothers and sisters could experience what I have every day. That's, that's a pretty powerful and heartbreaking statement. Can you imagine Paul's anguish? Paul was almost in a state of, of unbelief. In this sense, how in the world, of all the people on the planet, how can the Jewish people reject the Christ? How in the world is that a possibility? He was the one promised to them. He's the one that they've been waiting on. Here's what he says next, verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them, to the Jews, belong the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. How can they miss it when, when he literally comes from them? Of all the people in the whole wide world to not see him as the Christ, Paul would consider this as just Unbelievable. Evidently, some people had questions about it. Maybe maybe it was something like this. If they, the Jewish people, had had failed, then maybe it's because God's word was insufficient. Maybe it's God's word being a failure in what it was sent out to do. Here's what Paul would say to that line of thinking. Look at verse 6 and 7. But it is not through the word of God. It is not though the word of God has failed. For not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. Pause. That statement alone may cause you to want to chase a rabbit. Don't chase the rabbit. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. All right. So there's some big moments. This is one of them that I was telling you about. God's word will not, has not, and has never failed. The truth is, not everyone born into Israel belongs to Israel. If you need more clarity, here's, here's another way to hear it. Not everyone of Abraham's kids are a part of Abraham's covenant family. He, he quotes here. Paul, Paul is quoting to help them understand. Write, write this reference down. Genesis 21:12. Abraham has a son that was promised to him by God. What was that son's name? Isaac. Very good. Was Isaac Abraham's only son? No. Was Isaac Abraham's firstborn son? No. Abraham had another son. Not with his wife Sarah, but with Sarah's maid named Hagar. What was that son's name? Ishmael. You guys are passing Old Testament 101. I'm so proud of you. Even though Ishmael was born from Abraham, he was not part of Abraham's covenant family. So we move on to verse 8 and following. This means, this is what Paul is saying, he gives the explanation. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So in this very first illustration, Isaac and Ishmael are pitted against each other. Both are born from Abraham, but Isaac was the child of promise. But he doesn't leave it there. He gives you one more illustration to see. Look at verse 10. And Not only so, not not only that one, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So this would be Isaac's kids. Though they were not yet born, this is really important, don't miss verse 11, though they were not yet born and had not done either good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, Rebecca was told this, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, we'll go ahead and get the easier one out of the way first. Does God really hate people? For the fact that he would say, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hated. Understand this. This would be a Jewish idiom. This this would to, to to help you understand us as the reader, understand the difference in in the affection here. It is not that God hates him, kicks him to the curb and wants nothing to do with him. It is the fact that the love for the other is so intense, it may feel like that. In the same way that Jesus says, if any man who wants to come and follow me, he must hate his mother and father. Do you think Jesus wants you to go home this afternoon when you're gathered around your lunch table, children look at your parents and say, I hate you in Jesus' name. Man, you ain't gonna have a tooth left in your head if you came from the Brady house. My mama wouldn't have put that to me. It's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what we are hearing here. But it is saying this, that the affection for Jacob before they are born is set. Although Isaac is the firstborn who should receive the affection. God had a different plan. So in illustration two, we have Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Many of us know how the story unfolds. Esau is the firstborn and he will sell his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Our usual takeaway from this is don't make big decisions when you're hungry. I'm just kidding, sort of. But Paul here is reminding us that God chose Jacob over Esau even before they were born, long before they were ever in that kitchen making a deal. Paul quotes Genesis 25, 23. Paul reminds us here, when we get to verse 11, we see this, that God didn't make his choice based on good or bad that had been done, or the potential of the future. God made his sovereign choice so that the purpose of election might continue, so that he would receive glory. That's why he does everything he does. So now, here comes the big question, okay? Here here potentially in your life group today, uh, I was talking to our staff this morning, um, because it's such a large swath of scripture and we're gonna go pretty fast through it, I'm gonna give you a couple of off-ramps that potentially you want to bring up for discussion. This is one of those off-ramps here, okay? So Paul sees it as an off-ramp or even as an opportunity for discussion and here is the thought behind it. Is that fair? Is God fair in doing that? Without Jacob and Esau growing up and to seeing what they will do, that before they were even born, God decided for them. Verse 14, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? What's Paul's answer? By no means. Certainly not. God, is this fair? Paul says, absolutely it's fair. Here's here's the answer as to why. Look at verse fifteen. For he says to Moses, so so there's a lot of teaching that goes on here, pulling um, pulling information and stories and background from the Old Testament to help them understand. Primarily at this moment, speaking to the Jews who would who have a great understanding of what's going on. Verse fifteen. For he says to Moses, here's the quote: I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion. On whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Just for a moment, and I know we have a long way to go, don't miss that explanation. For this is not just the explanation of what Paul's point is in the first part of Romans 9. This is the explanation of God's activity in our life forever. I'll read it again just so you hear. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17 follows. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show how my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Without going into another Old Testament sermon, do you guys remember Pharaoh? Do you remember the Exodus and what happened before the Exodus? Over 400 years of of God's children being in slavery, in, in exile, as it were. And so there's this moment that Pharaoh breaks and it's through the, the 10 plagues that come and those are, those are all really important. They point to something great and, and how God is greater than all the other Egyptian gods. But the point here is that Pharaoh may have been the most powerful man in all of Egypt, but God willed his heart. He moved it like water in his palm. The point that Paul makes here is a point that we need to understand greatly and it is this. God is all powerful. There is no one like him. There was no one beside him. There was no one who rivals him. No one who is close. God is sovereign over all. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on who he wills and he hardens whom he wills. All right. We see that God's decision here is fair because it's his decision to make. But in all fairness, how can God still hold somebody accountable if God is doing the work in their life, causing them either to respond or not respond? How can that be fair still? How can God hold that person accountable? Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? If, if, if this is true, if God is the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart so God would get the glory and God's people would get the good, how is that something we can compete with? Why would God even still hold Pharaoh accountable if God did the work? Verse 20, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? All right, this is a big moment right here. This would be another one of those off-ramps for discussion in your life group. But hear me out. This is one of those, we need to settle this in our heart today. Regardless of where you land on any of these theological issues that are popping up all throughout Romans You need to understand this. God is the creator and we are the creation We need to hear that and you need to write that and nail that down He is the potter and we are the clay he can choose to do whatever he wants in our life for he is the creator I don't think this means that we can't come to God with questions. So so when Paul comes here and he says, who are you to answer back to God? This is more of an arrogant, God, why would you do that to me? I can't believe you would do this. This is wrong. Anytime we come to God in arrogance, we, we may feel a little of this. If you remember your Old Testament, seemingly you were all Old Testament scholars. Do you remember Job? Do you remember Job gets to the end of his life and he begins to ask questions? And there's this kind of great moment where God sits Job down and says, hey, Job, where were you? Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I put the mountains in place and set the seas where they are? Where were you when I did all of these things? In essence, what he is saying is, you weren't there. For I had not created you yet. So there's, there's a bit of weightiness here, okay? So, so the question is, how can, God find fault? How, how can God still find fault? I would encourage you to think more broadly. This is God's prerogative to do whatever he sees fit. We must, church, have a better understanding of our relationship with God. Too often, and here's where I think the rub lies, and again, this is one of those off-ramps for discussion. Too often we see ourselves as equal with God or even worse, and this is way worse, as more superior than him. And the only reason that we need him is for him to come because he has some power that we don't, to come in and make the lives that we want even better. That's the danger of being really religious and not submitting to him as our Lord. So too often we look at ourselves and we, we may say and we may play the game, God, you were you great, you sit in high, in heaven, all lifted high, but in reality, we believe that he is either beside us or below us and he just needs to bless us so we can get the life that we really want. That is not the gospel. The gospel is we were dead in our sin and God breathed life into us and gave us life that we never had. And so from this, we begin to see a fuller and grander picture. Paul is reminding us that God is the potter and we are the clay. He can can do whatever he pleases. That being said, and hopefully understood, Paul now gives us a beautiful, hope-filled reason for God's actions. Look at verse 22. What if God, so he's going to explain why God is doing what he's doing. You you may say, God, why, why did you do that? He's going to give an explanation. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In other words, this, for God to show that he is indeed good and that he indeed loves the world. that the people who broke the law of God were guilty for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Okay, again, if that's true, then the God that is just should take you out as soon as you broke the covenant. But God is good and he is patient. So, what if God, desiring to show his, his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience, Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory. For vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is good news for us Gentiles, good news today. Whatever God does, he does for his glory and our good. Remember that. Whatever God wills, God wills for his glory and our good. In God's plan, and his divine patience, something awesome is happening. What did the last part of verse 24 just say? In the waiting, God is calling Jews and Gentiles. Hey church, that's us. And that's good news for us. Paul will quote Hosea and Isaiah to make this powerful connection. Journey, if you will. Look at verse 25. And indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Now, if you've never read Hosea, go. Read it. It is an intriguing read. Although Redeeming Love is based out of Hosea, do not get your biblical understanding from the movie Redeeming Love. There's this picture here of someone, and the, the imagery is this the people that God has called to, to covenant with, and they keep running away and they keep having these kids with other, other people. And God says, I'm not going to love them. They're not going to be my people. They're not child, children of promise. But by his grace, he brings them in. That's what he says. Not my people will be called my people. The one that was not loved will be loved. The one in the very place it was said that you are not my people, and they will be called sons of the living God. That is awesome. Verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel had been as the sands of the sea only a remnant of them will be saved for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay and as Isaiah predicted here's the quote if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah God in his great grace will save will redeem and will restore the outsider will be brought in the unloved will be loved. The lost will be found. We will not be wiped out and we will not be forgotten. Why? For God saves. We'll end with this. The worship team can make their way back up. And as always, please don't pack up. The most important part. Verse 30. This leads us into next week. So, what do we say about all of this? It's a lot. And if we wanted to, we could have paused for week after week after week with verse after verse after verse in chapter 9. But we did it. On purpose. So what do we say about all of this? Here's what Paul says. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they did not pursue righteousness, but they've obtained it. That is the righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that wall. Why, why would that not be the case? Because they did not pursue it by, what's the word? Faith, but as if it were based on works. They thought they could earn it. They, They thought they could keep it. They thought they could live up to the standard that was set before them, and they didn't know that that standard was pointing to something better. Why? Because it was not pursued by faith, but it was pursued by works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, verse 33 is really important. Isaiah 28:16 is the quote here. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If you read Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, it's going to sound different but mean the same. Because in Isaiah 28, Isaiah speaks t- to the positive side of that. He's given a precious cornerstone, a sure and firm foundation, one that when you build your life on it, you will not be shaken. So here, God in his sovereign grace gave a promise that came from the mouth of Isaiah that he was laying a sure foundation, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, and whoever builds his life on that stone will not be put to shame. The Gentiles did that. They built their life on the cornerstone that is Christ. The Jews did not. The stone was there. Christ was set before them. And instead of building their life on him, they tried to step over him and to get around him. And they stumbled and they've stumbled ever since. So here are the takeaways from a very fast sermon today. Number one, the only way that a person will ever be saved is through Jesus Christ. Nail it down. It's what the scriptures teach. The only reason someone will ever spend an eternity in hell separated from God is because they have rejected Jesus Christ. Number three, God gave us the most precious and awesome gift and his son Jesus. The question is now, what will we do with him? The Jews didn't see him for what he was the firm foundation, the cornerstone of their life. And in their error, they continued to stumble, running to religion to try to make it better, yet only making things far worse. The Gentiles saw Jesus as the Christ. They put their hope and their trust in him. And because of that, because of that grace extended to them by God, the outsider is brought inside. The unloved is loved. The lost is found. All right. You may have heard all of that, but the Taliban soldier and the earthquake still got you shook. And you're sitting here thinking, what about all that election talk? Is that true? Yes, 100%. Is predestination true? 100%. How can you say that? Because the Bible says it. Well, does man have free will? Yep. How can you say that? The Bible says it. How do you make both of those get along? God said that does. I don't need to take the tension away from you. Matter of fact, I think it's good. But you may find yourself this morning figuring out, am I okay? You. You may think that about me. You may think, am I really saved? Again, that's not a tension I want to steal away from you because I believe God does great things in those moments. But I do want to give you some encouragement here. Okay? A lost person that has never repented of their sins. So so someone who is lost and they've they've never trusted in Christ will not be saved gosh, that doesn't make me feel good. Let me switch it. Anyone who has ever repented of their sin in brokenness and trusted Christ as their Lord, 100% of the time has been saved by God's grace. I want you to hear that. That's what the Bible teaches us. A truly saved person never loses their salvation. God saved you, and God sustained you. Last one, and I think this is maybe where a lot of us maybe live, okay? So listen closely. Lost people generally aren't concerned about their eternal state. So take some comfort in the wrestling, as long as that wrestling drives you to Christ. Christ. We'll get there next week, but I do want to give you some encouragement because chapter nine, again, it's a hard passage. Even if you understand it, it's hard to apply it. But even if you sit here today saying, I get all of it, Josh, I'm still just a little bit nervous. I, this, this section of Romans has, has gotten me sh- shaken. Let's, let's look ahead just a bit, if you will. Look at Romans chapter 10 and look at verse 13. You probably have this underlined, highlighted. You maybe have this italicized. If you don't, you need all of them. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 13. Here is the word of the Lord. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Will be saved. So this morning... The Scripture doesn't tell us specifically this one. You need to decide if you want to the elect or not. You need to decide where you land on this spectrum of of free will and predestination. What you need to do is make a decision about what you are going to do with the cornerstone that is sat before you. Christ is here. He is the firm and sure foundation. So the question now becomes, what will you do with the Christ? if God and his grace has softened your heart and calls you to himself my suggestion is that you would come that you in your brokenness would repent of your sinful life and you would come to him and say Lord I am yours all of me I give it all to you and we trust Romans 10 13 all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved if that's already been your story, if that's already been the song that you have sang for generations now, then my hope for you is you would rejoice in what God has done and continues to do in you. But I would encourage you to pray for the lost friends around you that God would draw them to himself. Because again, I believe that no man can come to God unless God draws them. You say, Josh, stop changing. I'm not changing, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Your job is not to figure out God. Your job is to be obedient to God. Let us be men and women who love our Lord, and it is proven by how we live our life to bring him glory, honor, and praise. Church, would you pray with me? Father, we do love you, and we thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to dive into... Such a weighty text, but a good text. Thank you, Father, for allowing Gentiles into the kingdom. Thank you, Father, for extending grace to us and allowing us to come and receive salvation. Thank you that your ways are higher than ours and your thoughts are better than ours. And at best, as the Apostle Paul tells us, we look through a glass dimly lit, but one day we will see in full. But until then, we trust the Holy Spirit in leading us every step of the way to be obedient to your word and to do so with joy and gladness in our heart. Oh, Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray, and we now stand and respond. Church, would you stand?